Okay, Don, I'm going to pass it over to you. Let me just uh, move the things over to your video. And uh, okay, I think you're good to go. Um, okay, thank you, Cyrus. Are you hearing me? Yep. Lovely. Uh, I'm Don James, uh, here with Victoria. And I am feeling very privileged to have the opportunity to speak to you on Christmas Sunday. I grew up in a pastor's family in Edmonton, and that was what we always called the big last Sunday before Christmas, Christmas Sunday. Lots of people came to church that day who didn't come the, the whole rest of the year. So it was a big deal. So Victoria and I started worshiping with Maple Crest just at the first lockdown online. We, we joined with you for a number of weeks, and then we had a few Sundays in Park Sunday, in Park Theater rather, with everybody, until the present lockdown came upon us. We both work for Bridges for Peace, Victoria for about 16 years, and me for six or seven. Our mission is Christians supporting Israel and building relationships between Christians and Jews in Israel and around the world. And I was struck by the pre-service prayer theme of prepare the way of the Lord and, and our need for healing. And one of the needs for healing in the, in the wider church, and uh, I'm going to be kind of looking at the big picture, is between Christians and Jews. And the, the very last book of the Older Testament, Malachi, says that Elijah will come before the Messiah and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And although we may not always see this, we are the children uh, spiritually of the Jewish people. They are our fathers spiritually. And, and I believe part of the preparation that God is doing and has been doing for uh, more than a generation is turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children, bringing reconciliation. Now, Victoria and I are both really enjoying Cyrus' teaching, and so I hope that this morning's message will be a helpful segue to his message last Sunday on authority, which concluded with Jesus' return with an iron rod to destroy everything on earth that hinders love. So I hope it'll be a helpful segue. Am I too close to the screen when I lean in like this? <laughs> okay, I just want to be able to see my notes. I was in a Baptist seminary at McMaster University 40 years ago, and I had to write a senior seminar to graduate, almost a thesis. And so I chose to write on the parables. And my reason was so that I could get to know Jesus better, feeling like the parables were just fresh off his lips. And that would be a way to get to know him better. And that's exactly why Cyrus has us going through Revelation, is to get to know Jesus better. Yes, there is a whole end time scenario that's important, but we want to see Jesus. And so um, I want to look this morning at one of the parables, the three I did were the mustard seed, the leaven, and the good Samaritan. And the one I want to look at this morning is the mustard seed. And I hope... Uh, <clears throat> that uh, Wilma will be blessed. We have another tree, or two trees. We spoke of the importance of trees <laughs> in pre-service prayer. Most of Jesus' parables were about the kingdom of God. 
what it is like when God is king, when Messiah comes. In fact, that was the commonest theme of Jesus' preaching. Matthew says, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So in Mark 4, we hear Jesus ask, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? It is like a grain of mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. One translation says the seed grows up to become the largest of the shrubs in the garden. And that word shrub can be a clue. I hope you'll look back on what I say next to see how that's a clue. Jewish listeners to this parable would have received a rather subtle message. Now, the, the message still stands that the kingdom is going to grow exponentially, sort of the way it did with the leaven as well in the lump, leavening the whole lump. But Jesus had something, I think, very subtle to say in the way that, that he uh, did this and the background of this image of the mustard seed. Jewish listeners knew their scriptures, and a shrub was not the way a kingdom would be pictured. In Ezekiel 17, the kingdom is a noble cedar tree on the mountain height of Israel, and in the shade of its branches, every sort of bird will nest. And I'm going to show you a couple of other scriptures in the Old Testament, and in the parable as well, there's always birds nesting, and those are the nations that come to the light of Israel. So that's Ezekiel 17, a noble cedar. In Daniel, he has a vision of a great tree visible to the whole earth in whose branches live the birds of the heavens. And lastly, in Ezekiel again, chapter 31, Ezekiel compares the great empire of Assyria with a cedar of Lebanon, with the birds in its boughs and all the trees of Eden envying it until God cuts it down. <laughs> so that kingdom, that great kingdom, was cut down. So when Jesus compares the kingdom to a garden shrub, he's speaking of himself, and he, I think, is inferring, I am not like the king you were expecting. I am bringing the kingdom, at least in its first stage, but I am not like the kingdom you were expecting. As Cyrus said a few weeks ago, when Jesus came to earth, he had only a little power, and he was faithful in it. And if you think of Christmas, baby born in a stable, in a manger, and he grows up and he has 12 men following him. This is not a great kingdom. This is not great power. This is, in fact, a mustard bush version of the kingdom. When Jesus returns a second time, his authority will be magnified magnificently. But now we are part of the mustard bush kingdom. And like Jesus was faithful in that little that God gave him in his first, in his incarnation, we are called to be faithful in what he has given to us as part of the mustard bush kingdom. Looking forward to the kingdom that will look more like a great cedar of Lebanon. 
Let's just look now briefly at the post-Christmas encounters of Mary and Joseph and Jesus with Simeon and Anna for a glimpse of the expectations of the Jewish people for the kingdom of God. And I find it really lovely that we have a Simeon and an Anna in our fellowship. So well done, Cyrus and Natasha. So in Luke 2, we read that Mary and Joseph have come to Jerusalem 40 days after Jesus' birth to perform a sacrifice of purification, which is required by the Torah after childbirth. And Simeon meets them in the temple. He's an old man. He's righteous and devout. And Luke says he is waiting. What is he waiting for? Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And now that Simeon has seen Jesus, he says, I'm ready to die. We call his prayer the Nunc Dimittis. Now dismiss me, Lord. Let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. They were expecting the king to come in glory and restore the glory to Israel. Anna was also old. She was 84, and amazingly, she'd been living in the temple since she lost her husband many decades before. And Cyrus pointed her out as a model intercessor. She was praying and fasting constantly. <clears throat> and when she sees the infant Jesus, Luke says that she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The people of Israel were waiting. They were under Roman rule, and they were waiting for God to move, to bring consolation, to bring redemption from oppression through a king like David. And just to add a third example, not from the birth narratives, but right from the other end of Jesus' life, in Luke 24, we read about the two men on the Emmaus Road. They're chatting with Jesus and don't know it. He's died and rose from the dead. And they say to him, <clears throat> We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, but he failed. Didn't happen. So Israel was waiting for a Messiah, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a David, to throw off their oppressors. And they had been waiting for a thousand years. These righteous Jews, like Anna and Simeon, were waiting in expectation that God would restore the lost glory of Israel. Israel as a nation had reached her pinnacle under David, and then Solomon around 1000 BC. David had united the 12 tribes into one nation, and Solomon extended Israelite rule over some of the surrounding peoples. These were the glory days. The Queen of Sheba had come all the way from Africa to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. But since the kingdom of David and Solomon, it had been downhill all the way to Jesus. Perhaps with a, we could say a little exception, the Hanukkah story and the hundred years of Maccabean Hasmonean rule. But <clears throat> apart from that, it had been downhill all the way. First, the breaking up of Israel into two parts. Israel became the northern kingdom and Judah in the south. Then there was the dispersion of the northern tribes by the Assyrian Empire. We think now of the 10 lost tribes. Then, 100 years after that, the exile of the southern kingdom to Babylon, 
Then after a partial return from Babylon, Judah was conquered by the Greeks, and now, at the time of Jesus, the Romans. The Jewish people longed for a redeemer, a savior, a Messiah, and their prophets promised one. Isaiah has many messianic prophecies, and I'm just going to read one from Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now this, listen to this part. <clears throat> of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. So the prophets promised a return of the Davidic kingdom. And clearly Jesus did not fulfill this expectation at his first coming, which is why the Jewish leaders and the nation as a whole did not follow him and why they sought his death as someone who did have a following that might threaten them. Now, I think Jesus was pretty aware that he wasn't meeting expectations. And that must have been hard for him. And I believe that the parable of the mustard seed was intended to be a clue to those who had ears to hear of this shift in the kingdom paradigm. You might even say that Jesus told this parable to manage expectations. What really excites me about the Christmas story is the time dimension and how the birth of Jesus fits into a long, long love story between God and Israel. It's a story in two segments of approximately 2,000 years each. And I just love the fact that the Old Testament is about 2,000 years long from the call of Abraham. And here we are 2,000 years later, waiting in expectation. God called Abraham about 1800 BC to be the father of a nation. And uh, of course, from Jesus till now, we know is approximately 2000 years because we date our very time frame in our culture by Jesus' birth. <clears throat> now, of course, this love story involves us who are non-Jews. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But even as non-Jews, the Bible teaches us that we have a connection to the Jews. If you are in Christ, Paul writes in Galatians 3.29, if you're a Christian, then you are Abraham's offspring. I said earlier, we are the children of the fathers. We are Abraham's offspring. Paul is not saying that we are all Jews or that we're to become Jewish, but that we are grafted into a Jewish tree. And you can find that incredible teaching about Gentiles being grafted in to a Jewish root in Romans 11. That chapter completely revolutionized my understanding of the Bible about 22 years ago. So God works with Abraham's family for almost 2,000 years up to the point of the first Christmas. And that was a very mixed history with considerable amounts of idolatry and sin on the part of Israel. God had disciplined them. He had to discipline them severely, including through exiles. And now, in a huge turn of events, God sends his son to the lost sheep of Israel to renew his covenant with the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, 
to write his law on their hearts, as Jeremiah prophesied. If you read about the new covenant, which is probably better translated the, new, the renewal of the covenant in Jeremiah 31, you'll see that it's with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Now the first coming of Jesus, although it was a mustard bush in comparison, it was not a failure. Jesus brought a fundamental achievement in the purposes of God, namely his death as an atoning sacrifice so that sinful people could be in relationship with a holy, just God. The mercy and justice of God met in the death of God's son. Some Jews understood this with some difficulty after the resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But as I mentioned, the religious leadership of Israel and therefore the nation as a whole did not get it. This was not the kingdom they were looking for. And so for the nation of Israel, the mustard bush kingdom did not have its full desired effect. So now I want to shift to the second 2000 years. And we see at the beginning of that, that although the, G the Jesus movement was almost exclusively Jewish, Jesus and his disciples, all Jewish, the, the 3,000 at Pentecost, all Jewish, the early church was all Jewish, things would change radically in the decades after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Two factors coalesced to transform the Jesus movement from exclusively Jewish to exclusively Gentile. As we've noted, the Jewish leadership did not accept Jesus as sent from God. They were looking for a cedar of Lebanon type of kingdom, not a mustard bush affair. So that's the first factor. The second one is that the mission to the Gentiles was phenomenally successful. Beginning with Paul's missionary journeys, the Roman Empire of Gentile peoples was Christianized. And in fact, in the year 300, the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of his empire. So this movement, this Jesus movement, goes from becoming exclusively Jewish to exclusively Gentile, and this created some significant issues. This transformation deserves a whole lot of study, and there's a lot of detail, but just briefly, I want to say that the now Gentile church wrote the Jews right out of the story. Up until then, it had been an entirely a Jewish love story with God. And the early church wrote the Jews out of the story completely. They even become, be, became, became the nemesis. If, if they were still in the story, they, for some of the theologians, they were the nemesis of God. The love story between God and Israel was over in the mind of the church. Israel now replaced by the Gentile church. And I'll give you just one example of this new theology. And almost all the church fathers right up to recent centuries taught this. This is from Origen, the Bishop of Alexandria. His dates were 185 to 254 AD. 185, not very long after the ascension of Jesus. And this is what he wrote. We may thus assert in utter confidence that the Jews will not return to their earlier situation. And he's referring to their chosenness. For they have committed the most abominable of crimes in forming this conspiracy against the savior of the human race. Hence the city where Jesus <laughs> suffered was necessarily destroyed. The Jewish nation was driven from its country and both of those did happen, the exiled by the Romans. 
and another people was called by God to the blessed election. And that wasn't true. That wasn't God's purpose. But that's what the early church began to believe. And you can see why this might be called replacement theology. Origen's view has been the majority view, not the minority, for all of church history. Almost all Christian leaders beginning about 200 AD until the late 19th century, and, and it's still very powerful even today, believed and taught this view of Israel being written out of God's purposes. Uh, even Martin Luther, great reformer, justification by faith, but he was so much in this camp of replacement theology that Adolf Hitler used his writings to justify his efforts to exterminate the Jews. Adolf Hitler used his writings. Hitler said, burn their synagogues, take away their jobs, drive them from their homes, and many more venomous things. So to summarize the first 19 centuries after Jesus then, the Jews suffered and wandered and were persecuted throughout the world with Christians and the Christian church as their principal enemies, their principal nemesis. I think I forgot to mention that the Jews were exiled from Judea in 135 AD by the Romans. And they, have they would remain in exile until only recently. And we're going to come to that very exciting story in a moment. So my goal this morning is to come back to where we left off last week in this large view of history that we're taking 2,000 years before Jesus and now we're 2,000 years after him, to come back to the return of Jesus in power to rule the world with believers as his co-rulers, co-regents, a cedar of Lebanon <clears throat> kingdom. But there may be a bit of an elephant in the room. And this is what I think it is. I know that when I think of the future, my long-term future as a believer, I don't think of ruling and reigning with Jesus over an earthly kingdom. I think of dying, going to heaven, where I will live happily forever with Jesus. So how do these two ideas fit together? For a long, long time, the Christian view of the future has always been about heaven. I'm not unusual. This is what the church has taught for almost 2,000 years. The gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus preached, has essentially disappeared we preach the gospel of the atonement so that people will go to heaven when they die. And the gospel of the atonement is very, very important. I don't mean to downplay that. As I said earlier, the basic purpose of Jesus' first coming was the atonement. So the atonement is very real, it's very important, and heaven is very real and very biblical. If uh, uh, this isn't the, the passage that uh, Marg read from Revelation, but it's similar. We've all thrilled to the pictures of the throne of God in Revelation with myriads of angels around the throne singing and multitudes of the saints from every nation crying, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And that is what is going on today in heaven. And I don't mean to minimize that. But what about the kingdom of God that Jesus preached on earth? Heaven is real. It is now. It is wonderful, but is not the entire future of God's purposes. 
There's a very influential book by N.T. Wright called Surprised by Hope. And he uses the phrase, life after life after death. And it is our Greek or Hellenistic worldview, which makes it hard for us to really grasp what the Bible says about that, that there is life after life after death. Now, I'm going to come back to Greek Hellenistic. I'm not going to go too philosophical on you. But what he is saying, he's talking about Jesus ruling over an earthly kingdom and a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, a new heaven and a new earth. This is the kingdom of God that Jesus preached. The apostles preached this message in Acts 2 as the restoration of all things, the restoration of the earth. Paul wrote about it in Romans 8, where he said, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. God is not abandoning his creation project. He will redeem it. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Swords will be beaten into into plowshares. Just to give you a couple of images from the many prophecies about this kingdom in the Older Testament. So I know that was, <laughs> that was a, a pretty big curveball I just threw you, so let me try to unpack it a little bit. What do I mean by a Greek or Hellenistic worldview? Part of the tragedy of replacement theology is that the Gentile church leaders determined to scrub their faith of everything Jewish and to make it compatible with their culture, which was Greek. It was the Roman Empire, but it was Greek Hellenistic culture. So the Council of Nicaea declared in 325 that the church will have nothing to do with the murderers of our Lord. We're not even going to date Easter by the Jewish date of Passover, because that would be having something to do with our Jewish roots, which we are cutting off. Now, in that culture, uh, Plato was the dominant philosopher. And leaders like Origen set about to transform Christian, Hebrew, biblical theology so that it conformed to Plato, to Platonic thinking. So before I lose you again, the short version of what I'm saying is that the future hope of the gospel became otherworldly instead of thisworldly. Heaven on the clouds instead of a kingdom of God on earth. Now, here's a slightly longer version of Hellenistic philosophy. Their worldview was dualistic. Namely, the material world is evil. The spiritual world is good. So this creation is a lesser existence. For Plato, there was a spiritual world, and he used the term forms. In that spiritual world, there were the ideals of every object in the physical world. And the, and the physical objects on earth are merely shadows of those perfect forms. So I think you'll, you'll get it when I tell you what the early church fathers did with that, working to adapt their faith to his dualistic worldview. Justin Martyr, again very early, said, we live in a second-rate version of a perfect world that existed on a higher plane. We want to get back to that higher plane. For Origen, who who really went to town on Hellenizing the gospel, he said this, 
very telling. The goal of faith is to restore all souls to a purely intellectual existence because the body and matter is second rate. And so it's from this Greek worldview that we get our expectation of an ethereal, immaterial future existence in a purely spiritual realm. Just to caricature it, it's our expectation, kind of a boring one sometimes, of floating on a cloud playing a harp all day forever. And this is not the future expectation of the Hebrew scriptures. They are very this worldly. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> For the Hebrew mind, if we contrast that to the Greek mind, all creation is a dynamic unity and it's all good. Think of the creation story. God saw all that he'd made and behold, it was very good. Mankind is a dynamic unity, body, mind, and spirit, all very good. And so salvation for the Hebrews involved the restoration of creation, not a leaving of it for a spiritual realm. We do leave our bodies for a time when we die, if we die before Jesus returns. We leave our bodies to dwell in heaven. But the ultimate goal is that we will come back. If we have died and gone to heaven, then Jesus says that he is coming back at the trumpet sound with his saints, those who are now worshiping at the throne. They will come back with him. Their bodies, they'll be reunited to their bodies, sort of physical bodies. And those believers who are still on the earth when Jesus returns, will go out to meet him in the clouds and they will welcome him as their king in Jerusalem. So Paul wrote in Romans 8, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So if in the future, the future in a biblical Hebraic worldview involves a millennial reign of Christ on earth, followed by a coming down to earth of a new Jerusalem and a new heavens and a new earth. And don't ask me how those two fit together, but I know that it's on earth. It's that future that Jesus is returning to preside over from Jerusalem, returning with the saints, those believers who are now in heaven, being united with him, united rather with their resurrection bodies, and those believers who haven't died, welcoming him in the clouds and reigning with him. Now this, this is breathtaking, and it is faith requiring. It may seem strange and new, because the church for almost 2,000 years has been de-emphasizing this earthly hope and focusing solely on heaven, though we pray, thy kingdom come on earth. And so this is what Jesus and John the Baptist and the apostles are referring to when they refer to the gospel of the kingdom, God as king on the earth. We're in a mustard bush kingdom now, and in the future, we will be part of a cedar of Lebanon kingdom. 
Now we're at the end of the story, but I'm not quite finished preaching yet because I want to back up and point out something that I think will hopefully build our faith in a coming earthly kingdom. In Luke 13, 35, Jesus says this, You won't see me again, you people of Jerusalem, until the time when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus knows that the majority of his fellow Jews have not come into his kingdom in the mustard bush age, but he has not written them out of the story. They will be part of his kingdom. After all, it's centered in Jerusalem. And so that means two things. First of all, regathering them from exile, and secondly, saving them. That's what he means when he says, you will not see me again until you are ready to call me Lord. So first of all, the regathering and then the saving. In 1880, when the modern Aliyah movement began, Aliyah means going up to Jerusalem, there were about 24,000 Jews living in Palestine. Now the Romans had renamed Judea Palestine after the Philistines. They wanted to mock the Jews and the Philistines were the ancient enemy of Israel. So 24,000 Jews living in Palestine, and we call Palestine until 1948, the independence of Israel. Today, there are well over 6 million Jews in Israel. Half the Jews in the world live in Israel. And more are returning every week at a furious pace, even in the middle of the pandemic. Israel decided that they would bring back 2,000 more Ethiopian Jews, and they already have well over 10,000, right in the middle of the pandemic. The Ethiopian Jews, most people believe, are part of the tribe of Dan, one of the 10 lost tribes that the Assyrians dispersed 2,700 years ago. So this is amazing, the regathering of Israel. Just this week, 131 Jews returned to Israel from where? India, Northwest India. This is the tribe of Manasseh. We call it the Bnei, the sons of Menasheh. And they will join thousands of Bnei Menasheh who've already come back home since about 2000. So there are dozens, just as dozens of prophecies were fulfilled by the first coming of Jesus, there are dozens more being fulfilled by this regathering of the Jews to their ancient homeland, right in our generation. And of course, there will be dozens, even hundreds more fulfilled when Jesus returns. <clears throat> so God is regathering them, and he's bringing them home to save them, to reveal his son to them. Of the six million Jews in Israel, only about 30,000 are believers in Jesus. Many more are curious, and we believe there are many closet believers, thousands of closet believers, even rabbis. But the cost of professing Jesus today in Israel is very high, and so many people may be closet believers. But only 30,000 out of 6 million. One of the most amazing prophecies of God's intention to save the Jewish people is in the prophet Zechariah, chapters 12 and 14. I'm going to read part of that, 
But before what I read, chapter 8, Zechariah has just spoken of the return of the Jews from their exile. He speaks of children playing in the streets of Jerusalem, old men and old women watching them with staff in hand because of their great age. And we have Jewish friends who absolutely believe that their children are the fulfillment of Zechariah 8. <clears throat> and we have been seeing the fulfillment of Zechariah 8 since the 1880s when the modern Aliyah movement began. <clears throat> but now, in chapter 12, the nations of the world attack Israel. They are furious at what God is doing. Israel is such a controversial nation, and I believe it's because God is proving that he is the true God. Ezekiel 36 is an amazing chapter about this, where he says he's going to regather them for the sake of his holy name. His name has been profaned when they're in dispersion. He doesn't look like the true God. And so he's going to prove that he's the true God by bringing them back to the mountains of Israel. So that is happening, absolutely happening. It's well underway. And then the nations will be furious. It's interesting now Israel's making peace with nation after nation. And it's a bit hard to put that together. But there's still a very huge undercurrent of anti-Semitism in the world, and particularly in Iran and in Turkey and even in Russia. So in Zechariah 12, we read the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic, the horses of the enemies, and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. A little bit of rivalry among the tribes. But then listen to this. And I will pour out at this time on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. Megiddo is where Armageddon takes place, and this is Armageddon. So this is amazing. 
Jesus has returned to defend Israel against the nations. He has destroyed Israel's enemies. And as the Jewish people see who it is, it's him whom they have pierced, they mourn bitterly. And then the first verse of chapter 13, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Ezekiel says God will give them new hearts. Paul says all Israel will be saved. This is the kingdom of God coming to earth. Jesus is coming back with an iron rod to defeat his enemies, to rule the nations, and it has a lot to do with Israel. He's coming to Israel to defend the Jews from nations who want to destroy them. He's coming to save them. He will not return until the Jews are regathered from their exile into the land he gave them. And he will not return until they are ready to call him Lord. He's returning to establish a kingdom to be the king of the whole earth. And this will be the answer to our prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What I'm, what I'm teaching and I'm just about finished might be called filling in the blueprint, the centrality of Israel and God's purposes. And I think it was last week that Cyrus said something like this. It's important for the church to be in line with God's blueprint. And as we figure out where we are in these crazy, crazy times, Israel is such a key part of his blueprint. And uh, it's been missing from the blueprint for centuries. But God in his mercy is bringing that revelation back to the church. And so as we are waiting ourselves in this crazy world, we're waiting for the pandemic to end. We're waiting for revival. We, we want to be waiting uh, with the blueprint in mind that one of the things that God wants to do and needs to do before his kingdom can come on earth is that he needs to turn the hearts of the children, us, to their fathers, to our spiritual fathers, the Jewish people. I want to close with a comment on the Older Testament. I tried to find a text in Revelation to focus on in my message. I've loved how... Oh, Cyrus just has one verse from Revelation, and he unpacks it so beautifully. I didn't find one. Not that Israel is not in Revelation. It's everywhere. There's the 144,000 of the 12 tribes in Revelation 7. There's Armageddon in Revelation 16. And the 12 tribes in, Revel in Revelation give their names to the gates of Jerusalem when Jesus rules from there. And then there's the New Jerusalem. But what I realized in looking for a text about the centrality of, of Israel in the kingdom to come is that John's readers knew the Old Testament intimately. And so when they're reading what John's writing, they're putting what he says together with what they already know intimately from the Older Testament. And uh, so we need to know the Old Testament if we want to see the whole picture. If you'd like to explore this, I want to give you three scriptures which speak of the enemy's efforts to annihilate Israel following its regathering. What I just gave you, the third one is Zechariah. 
But the first one is Joel 3. And the second one is Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's the familiar war of Gog and Magog. Joel 3, Ezekiel 38 and 39, and Zechariah 12 to 14. There you'll see this picture of Jesus returning. And in Zechariah 14, he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's so amazing. And he's king over all the earth. So check those out and put that together with what we read in Revelation. Well, uh, in conclusion, may the Lord be with us as we wait eagerly for his appearance. 1 Peter 1.13 puts it this way. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ.